Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Anyway, somebody has no uh, difficulty with getting uh, the accents of various places right. <laughs> Jonathan DeBerg, no pressure. Jonathan DeBerg, <laughs> butler, uh, joins us once again. Afternoon, Jonathan. Uh, we, good, uh, we'll start with uh, uh, Kenya. Uh, there's just been an election there and uh, at least one side of that election is rejecting it. They sure are, and not for the first time. Um, this was an election which took place probably about 10 days ago. I think it was on a Tuesday, actually, so it might be two weeks ago at this stage. But elections in Kenya over the last number of years have been quite contentious, right? And there is a man whose name keeps popping up around these elections, and he is the, what I'm calling, I suppose, the perennial presidential candidate, a man by the name of Raila Odinga, who is now 77 years of age and has been involved in no fewer than five presidential elections, and he has lost each one. Mm. This is the third one that he is contesting. Now, people might remember his name because... You probably remember back in 2007, there was an election that was contested that led to ethnic violence and about a thousand people died, right? Ten years later, he was involved in that. Ten years later, in 2017, he contested an election. He went to the Supreme Court to get that overturned. He won, but decided not to go back and contest and and, and contest the rerun, okay, which obviously he lost. Mm. So he's run this time and he's lost by something like a quarter of a million votes, which in Kenya is not a large amount, right? So he's going back now. He's saying that these elections, the results are null and void. And he lodged a case with the Supreme Court on Monday. They have 14 days to decide whether to overturn the results or at least reject it and uh, have a rerun of the election. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, he has form in this department. Yeah, and, and the, the William Ruta, the, the winner, got mm. 50.49%. So this yeah. isn't one of those 100% it's percent of the, the electorate yeah, jobs not, that we yeah, normally yeah, yeah, talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, um, well, given that he keeps doing this, it yeah. just seems to me almost like he's just going to nag them into giving them the presidency at some point. Well, I, I'm not sure because it's funny because a lot of observers are saying that since the 2017 elections, that things in Kenya uh, around ballots are far more transparent and open. Mm. And a lot of observers, including EU observers, have said, you know, this one seems to be fine. The problem for the authorities in this case is that on the day of the election, they were supposed to announce the result at about 3pm, but the head of the Electoral Commission turned up at 4pm and things got paused during the count, right? Okay. And when he issued the result, the number of votes conflicted with the result, if you know what I mean. Okay. So it was something like 100.01% over the, the the two tallies didn't tally, yes, if you know yeah. what I mean, right? So there's about 140,000 votes missing. Somewhere, okay, and but in a, an electorate that massive, yeah, that's yeah, a relatively uh, small yeah. And Odinga is saying that there's results from 27 constituencies that aren't right, and also I think he has in his favour the fact that four other members of that electoral commission, there's seven in total, said that they didn't go with the results that were issued by the head of the electoral commission. All right, okay, so yeah, okay. he might have some yeah. sort of a case. Yes, so they don't have like what they have here, just a recount. Uh, no, uh, and, yeah. they, they, I don't think they do. That's a good question, actually. Yeah. Uh, you'd imagine. They might go back and uh, have another crack at it, but uh, yeah. but no. 
Right, okay, Saudi Arabia uh, will uh, go to next. And uh, as you can imagine, it's always good news from Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is this is a Leeds University uh, PhD student. What did he tweet first that's uh, so yes. terrible? So uh, Salma Al-Shahab, a 34-year-old woman from uh, Saudi Arabia, she is, as you say, a PhD student in Leeds University. And I think that's actually relatively important because the university are using their position as leverage to get this story into the media. Okay, there's no mm-hmm. no doubt about it. And that's okay. absolutely fair enough, right? So she's mother of two. She was arrested in 2021 20, when she was on holiday in Saudi Arabia. Now, she was arrested for... Uh, disrupting public order and publishing false rumours. And this was enough to put her in front of a terrorism tribunal, which originally convicted her to six years in prison, right? Simply for tweets. Now, these were tweets that were sent out earlier before she went back to Saudi Arabia. Okay. In support of those women that you might remember that were thrown in jail themselves. Yeah for trying to overturn the ban on women driving. Okay, but they became quite famous, right? They were eventually released. But this woman, Salma al-Shahab, was thrown in prison. And as I said, she originally got six years. The appeal result came back last week on the 9th of August. Well, a few days ago, sorry. And they've sentenced her now. They've extended it to 34 years. So from six to 34 years. And on top of that, they've added a 34-year travel ban that would start following her release um, so as you can imagine, human rights organisations, along with Leeds University and various different organisations, are up in arms about this because it's an unprecedented sentence. Uh, she's a Saudi citizen, I think. She is, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and she's uh, she's a me- she was doing a PhD in dental dentistry, I think, and she yeah. lectures actually in a university in Riyadh. So she'd be. <laughs> Not that it matters really, mm. but she'd be, you know, well established, well educated woman. Yeah. Uh, has a bit about her, shall we say? Yeah. Interesting though that that you know someone enters, you know, re-enters Saudi Arabia, and the authorities are even aware of the mm. fact that she's tweeted about this. Yeah, it, it is. Must it be is. This someplace of this kind of thing. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is that she doesn't have a huge amount of followers on Twitter. I mean, yeah. before, uh, I think her last tweet was sent out just three days before she was arrested in early in February 2021. She only had 2,300 followers. So it's, it's not... It her be reach a huge isn't that, name. No, yeah. well, it's not a huge, huge name, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're, they certainly seem to monitor, uh, monitor it in some fashion and um, that's what's got her in trouble anyway. And um, it's interesting because all that international pressure that was put on Saudi Arabia to get those women that reversed mm. the ban on driving out has seemed to have eased off now a little bit. And you might remember, you know, Joe Biden said back in the day that he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state because of its um, human rights record. And he was only there a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> shaking hands and looking for oil. So things uh, change quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, apart from uh, Leeds University, have any has anyone at state level said anything about this or promised to help? The, the American State Department have basically said that, you know, they've come out with a statement exercising freedom of expression to advocate for the rights of women should not be criminalised. Full stop. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Get the hint? Not really. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Ecuador. We're going to go to next, and uh, a story about now. Drug. Now, Ecuador isn't mm. normally connected with drugs violence. Yeah, and this is why it jumped out at me. To be honest with you, because mm. the amount of do- stories we do in this part of the world uh, on drugs violence, and uh, it's usually different countries, um, but not Ecuador. And this is it, it, this is a strange one. All right, and it, but it is connected to the countries that are close to it. Right. So. 
Um, where do I begin with this one? I'll begin at the of what happened last week in a city called Guayaquil. There was uh, a bomb attack which killed five people and injured 17, right? It is the 145th bomb attack this year, okay? Crikey. About 70 of those have taken place in this one city. Now, this is a city that never featured on any sort of crime list or violent, uh, you know, list of violent cities in the world. And last year it made it into the top 50 for the first time. And that's the first time a city in Ecuador has gone into the top 50. Okay, Mm -hmm. so normally you'd get cities in Honduras and El Salvador, Mexico, various different places. But Ecuador, no. So this is something that's quite new. And what seems to have happened is... There was um, a criminal by the name of Jorge Zambrano who was shot dead in 2020. He had just been released from prison. He actually had just got his law degree, would you believe? Hmm. But he was the head honcho, if you'll excuse the pun, who looked after drug trafficking for a well-known Mexican cartel in Ecuador. And he was the main guy. Nobody ever went near him or his gang. So it was kind of allowed... I'm not going to say it was allowed to happen, but it happened. And nobody else got involved. When he was shot dead, as is often the case, the whole thing opened up and rival gangs decided to go after his gangs. And this is why you've seen this escalation in violence. And it has been absolutely gruesome. I mean, there's been something like 400 deaths in prisons uh, because of prison riots and gangs attacking each other in prisons since February of 2021. Um, and there's been dozens uh, of these kind of uh, attacks, as I've said, well, 145 so far this year, mm. bomb attacks um, in in uh, in Ecuador. So it's a real jump, a real jump. And the, like the warring factions here, are they almost like avatars for, you know, uh, larger gangs in surrounding countries where they are major drug producers? Yeah, so this, the, the problem with Ecuador Ecuador is that it's it's sandwiched in between Colombia and Peru, so they're mm. the two biggest producers, right? And so there is a, a route that that you can go through, and, and an awful lot of the drugs go into the end up going through into the United States and then coming to Europe. They end up largely in Belgium, apparently. Mm. How they get there, I don't know, but I think it's it's through parts of Africa and then up and into yeah. Belgium. Um, so it, these guys would be vying for turf. Uh, against each other and it's obviously very very profitable now in answer to your question about are they sort of proxies for for others certainly that group that uh, Jorge Zambrano was head of are acting for a very well known Mexican we're acting for a very well known Mexican cartel Um, so it's lucrative stuff yeah and it's lucrative in the sense of it's not actually necessarily being sold in the country this is for this is an so, exporter. United, United States and Belgium and, and the rest of Europe, well, not Belgium, but the rest yeah. of Europe. Yeah. They're, they're, they're the countries that you get the most money for it from. Yeah. from. So it's, it's all about demand, but that's a different discussion. Over yeah, here. indeed. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, uh, we're going to go to next. I, one pilot falling asleep is, you know, may, perhaps understandable if they'd had a hard day, but two pilots fall asleep. Mm, this is two pilots from Ethiopian Airlines, which seems to be doesn't have the best reputation in the world, it has to be said. Well, certainly not now. Uh, yeah, so this was, and, and, and I'm not sure how, how long this flight would have been, but it's from Khartoum in Sudan to uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, so I wouldn't imagine it was that long. I'm, I'm open to correction mm. on that. But anyway, these two pilots, according, this is according to Aviation Herald, by the way, uh, so it's like one of those publications from whose line is it anyway, but uh, <laughs> they basically published this story which said that air traffic control raised an alert when the flight approached 
the airport but didn't start its descent. The pilots fell asleep uh, but the Boeing 737's autopilot system kept the plane cruising at 37,000 feet, right? And when it overshot the runway, the mark where it was supposed to have landed, an alarm went off. The autopilot stopped and an alarm went off. The two lads woke up, they circled back and they uh, landed the plane 25 minutes late. Now, interestingly enough, the next time the flight took off wasn't for another two and a half hours. So I think they might have had a little nap and then... uh, made the return flight but it it, it, it happens uh, apparently this isn't the first time this year there was another flight between um, New York and Rome in May where the two pilots fall asleep and some similar outcome occurred yeah that's that's overworked absolutely terrifying it uh, is and uh, Japan uh, <laughs> Japan are probably going against the health advice of every other country in the world encouraging young people to do what drink yeah uh, drink more uh, more alcohol Um it's a, f- a funny relationship, I suppose, the Japanese have. We we, we always think of um, Japan as, you know, hardworking, studying hard, hardworking, and then they go and karaoke and, yeah. you know, the businessmen, the stereotype, yeah. knocking back the sake and w- whatever. And, and largely the population there doesn't drink that much, not the way that we do, yeah. right? But they do have a cohort of problem drinkers, like any country in the world, right? So a couple of years ago, the health ministry launched a campaign to try and target the small portion of that population that were responsible for drinking about 70 to 75% of the alcohol. And they were largely successful, right? So it's reduced. But the problem is that Japan's national tax agency is losing income. And they're also concerned that some of the distilleries and some of the breweries are going to lose out. Now, they, they would have a decent export uh, share as well of, yeah. of whiskies and that kind of thing in Japan. So what they've done is they've come up with this idea called Sake Viva. Uh, it's an online contest where people between the ages of 20 and 39 are being asked to submit ideas to launch a campaign that will encourage people of their own age, presumably between 20 and 39, to get back into the pub and start drinking alcohol again. Um yeah, so I that's, don't know. That's, I, and, and how are they? Uh, uh, but they haven't figured out how to encourage uh, young people to do this yet. No, they haven't. So th- that's that's why they're launching this campaign, obviously, or the the, the ideas for the campaign. But it hasn't uh, met with with the greatest round of applause. To be honest with you, there's been quite a bit of criticism, and as you've said or alluded to, at least, you know. They're going against the grain in terms yeah. of what other governments are doing and trying a, to encourage a, young people to drink. Especially if they're just doing it for tax generation reasons. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say there's a little bit more to it in that it's tax generation, but it's also keeping those breweries alive and, yeah, and, and sure. jobs and that kind of thing. So I, I have to say, I think they might have been misunderstood a little bit in that they don't really want young people to go out and start drinking their loaf off. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Doing <laughs> shots and that kind of thing. But they would like to encourage them to go back to the pubs and, and maybe drink a little bit of wine I don't know if they make wine in Japan do you know what I mean yeah at a reasonable level uh, yes so that the tax uh, revenue keeps going and people keep their jobs right so over the next few days what should we look out for yeah interesting one everything's happening on Wednesday for some reason Uh, Angolan general election which I'm going to be talking about next week for sure 
because it could see the end of a very long um, regime. It could see a regime change there. It's unlikely, but it might happen. You never know. And then Wednesday, Poland and Ukraine are both celebrating their independence day, well, although yeah. I know Ukraine have decided that they're going to... stay indoors, yeah. Tone it God down. knows what might happen that yeah. day, yeah. And then the following week, on Wednesday week, the start of the Venice Film Festival. So that could be interesting as well. Indeed. Uh, uh, one, uh, thanks a million, Jonathan. Thanks, uh, uh, one, just one comment on uh, the pronunciation of names. My father was Polish, surname Piskorski. Back in the early 80s, he went into the Dublin Corporation, as it was, to discuss an, in- an issue. They sent him from office to office until uh, to get a form. And when he got to the final office, they told him they'd run out of forms. Fine, he said. I'll wait. The tension was mounting as a few hours the clock was approaching going home time. In the end, one of the staff went home to get one and my dad left. The next letter he got was addressed to Mr. Pesofsky. Uh, you are listening to The Moncrief <laughs> Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that. How you can still get gout. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.